We are in week number two of a new sermon series that we just started uh, called A Year in the Life of Jesus. And I was thinking about it, reflecting on it today, and I'm just so glad that God is pointing us in this direction. You know, we're a new church plant. We just started weekly services on Easter Sunday, and there's a whole range of topics that we could be talking about uh, at church. And Hey, how's it going? I'm just confronted with the fact that I, above all things, need more of Jesus in my life. And I think that's really what what the world needs. And so what we're going to do is just, without any of the trappings of as much tradition and all all these kind of things, we're just going to look at a year in Jesus' life as it's revealed in Scripture, John chapters 2 through 4, which pretty much takes on this chronological cycle of a year in his life from Cana. He starts out in Cana at this wedding and ends up in Cana as well. So that should take us through the end of June. And thanks for going on this journey with me. Now, last week, we started off in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We looked at this wedding in Cana. We saw how Jesus just graciously uh, provided a sign, provided wine for this young couple, this insignificant couple who we don't even know their name. And we saw how God's grace just enters into the smallest little area of life. And we're picking up the story now in verse 12. It's on page 727 in your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. And it says that after Jesus was in Cana, after he he performed his sign, he, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Now, Capernaum is about 15 miles east, northeast of Cana, and it's on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. So I don't know, maybe they were going to their summer house or something, just vacationing, I don't know. But So they're at Cana, and the next thing we learn in verse 13 is that Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. Now, kind of a little aside, Jerusalem is about 100 miles by road south-southwest of Capernaum, but yet it says that Jesus goes up. And the reason for that is because people in Jesus' day didn't think of geography like we do. They didn't think of north, south, east, and west. If I'm going to Seattle, I might say, I'm going down to Seattle. Or to Vancouver, I go up to Vancouver. But in Jesus' day, they thought very earthy. And so Jesus is going up to Jerusalem because it's a higher elevation, even though it's south. Now, I don't just share that for trivia. What I'm trying to do as I preach the Bible is teach the Bible. And one of the things that helps us is to get into the minds and the thought systems of the people in Jesus' day. It helps us understand understand Scripture a little bit better. So they're going up in elevation to Jerusalem. And here's why. It was the Passover. It was the Passover. Now there were three major festivals in the Jewish tradition. Passover was the big daddy of them all. Then you had Pentecost, which was early, uh, early summer, late spring. And then Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement in the fall. And the Jewish people were spread all throughout the Roman Empire. Some were in Alexandria, some were as far as Rome, some were in modern-day Turkey. And the men especially were expected to travel to pilgrimage three times a year to Jerusalem to celebrate these festivals. Now... For those who don't know uh, what Passover is, or maybe you've kind of, you just need a brush up, I'll give you the cliff notes, okay? Because this detail here isn't just a setting for a story. It's actually really significant that Jesus does what he does at the Passover. The Passover celebrates the time when God rescued Israel from Egyptian captivity. Over a thousand years before Jesus was alive and on the scene as a person, 
the Israelite people were in captivity. They were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And they cried out to God for rescue. God heard their cry and He raised up one of their own, a guy called Moses. You've probably heard of him. And uh, He tells Moses to go confront Pharaoh, who's the leader of the Egyptians. He says, I want you to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Well, okay. He goes up and says to Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh basically laughs in him. He says, who's your God anyway? And so God performs these different signs. They're plagues that kind of were intended to twist Pharaoh's arm a little bit to, to get him to let the people go. And, and I know you're kind of drowsy, so let's just have a fun little quiz. Who can name some of those plagues? Nathaniel, you can't do it all yet because we just had a quiz. Frogs. Locusts. Flies. I heard blood in the water, Tim. Yeah. Darkness. Good one. Everyone forgets that one. Ooh, yeah, doesn't that? Yeah. Boils, right? Ooh, that was gross. Death of the cattle, yeah. Hail. And there's a lot of other ones. I actually didn't memorize them all, so sue me. But there are, there are ten of these plagues, and every time Moses comes, he says, Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh would say, no. And then God would send a plague like locusts or boils all over the skin of every living thing. And Pharaoh would say, fine, fine, I'll let him go. And as soon as God took away the, the plague, Pharaoh would harden his heart again and say no. So finally, on the tenth try, the worst plague of all comes. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, if you don't let the people go, the firstborn of every family, of every animal is going to die. Pharaoh hardens his heart, doesn't listen to Moses. And so here's what happens. God tells Moses, tell the people that tonight I want you to kill a lamb, one for each family, wipe the blood on the doorpost over your house, and the angel of death, when they come to take all the firstborns, will pass over your houses. They wake up the next morning, sure enough, their nation is intact. God delivered their nation from the angel of death. Egypt, not so good. And Pharaoh says, get out of my country, you're a curse. Lots more things happen. I said this was cliff notes. The point being that the Passover celebrates that deliverance of God from the people, uh, for the people of Israel out of captivity. It's the biggest celebration in the Jewish calendar. And the place that they would all come, thousands of people converging on Jerusalem, and they would go one place, and that was the temple. The temple. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. Ian has a, a, a photo here, or a, a rendition of what it might have looked like to approach Jerusalem in the time of Christ. Michael Davidson gave me this pen that has a laser. So cool. And my cats love it too. So you're approaching Jerusalem and look at these fortified walls. In fact, in Hebrew, the word for city simply means a walled uh, walls. So if you're a legit city, you had fortified walls. And you can see here the smoke coming up. Boy, I have my hand shaking. Uh, that, that is the smoke from the, the altars and the sacrifices. So this entire complex here is Herod's temple. That's the temple. Alright, now, some fast facts about the temple. 
The temple during Jesus' day was actually the third rendition of the original temple. The first temple was built thousands of, or hundreds of years earlier in the reign of King Solomon. The reign of King Solomon. And what happened was in 587 the Babylonians came and took the Israelites into captivity, destroyed the temple. Seventy years later, some of the exiles got to go back and they built another temple. It wasn't nearly as big as Solomon's though. And then in 19 BC, King Herod came to power. A couple things about Herod. He was an egomaniac and the most of the common people of Israel did not like him. So he said, I'll kill two birds with one stone. I'll get the people of Israel to like me. I'll build the best temple they've ever seen. And two, I'll have a legacy. Because it'll be the best temple they've ever seen. So King Herod builds a temple that's nearly double the size of King Solomon's great temple. Here's some stats on it. The western wall was 1,590 feet long. The northern wall was 1,035, eastern wall another 1,500 feet, and the southern wall was a tiny 912 feet. So it was a rhombus. All you math people know what that is. Anyway, it's a rhombus. (laughs) And uh, the equivalent area on the inside of this rhombus, 35 football fields. This place is gigantic. Gigantic. 35 football fields could fit inside the area. Not only was it big, but it was incredibly beautiful. Ian, let's go to the next one. And you can't even get it all. This is a a model in Jerusalem. Uh, The temple's destroyed now. But these are the outer walls. You can imagine that they go like this. And this is the the inner temple. Um, You can't see it real well, but this whole facade, gold leaf. And the upper marble was bleached white. So they say that on a clear day, you could see the temple shimmering in the sun from miles away. It was an incredible building, one of the ancient wonders of the world. Go ahead and go to the next one, Ian. Here's just another, another angle. And let me just show you real quick. This whole area outside the middle building... It's called the Court of the Gentiles. This area here, the Gentiles could not go in that area. Any Jewish person, man or woman, no children, could go in this area. So this is called the Court of the Women. Right in this tiny little area, the Court of Israel. Only Jewish men who were, quote-unquote, purified, could go in there. Couldn't have any birth defects. Couldn't be from another nation. Had to be a Jewish guy. Had to be good-looking. And then right here, the Holy of Holies. Once a year, the high priest could go in and offer sacrifice to God. Thanks, Ian. The scholar N.T. Wright says this about the temple. The temple was the beating heart of Judaism. It wasn't just, as it were, a church on a street corner. It was the center of worship and music, the center of politics and society, of national celebration and mourning. It was also the place where you would find more animals, alive and dead, than anywhere else. But towering above all these, it was of course the place where Israel's God Yahweh had promised to live in the midst of his people.
It was the focal point of the nation and the national way of life. This was the place of worship. This was the place of sacrifice. They didn't have corner churches at this time. Now, something interesting. They come for Passover. Passover celebrates Israel's deliverance from captivity of Egypt, right? By Jesus' day, the Passover lamb had taken on another significance. The forgiveness of sin. The forgiveness of sin. The Passover was a time when all these pilgrims would come on Jerusalem, go to the temple, they would pay their temple tax, and they would sacrifice a lamb. Partly to remember their deliverance, partly for forgiveness of sin. Now, for those of you who were here last week, no, two weeks ago, I'm hoping some light bulbs are going off. Quiz, I've got to keep you awake. Uh, in John's Gospel, Jesus is introduced for the first time in the first chapter. How does John the Baptist introduce Jesus? Can't hear you. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Passover, temple. I'm just saying. Thousands of people converging on Jerusalem at this time, this the time our story takes place. And there are some common needs that, that happen. Like in verse 14, it, he talks about these, uh, there's those who are selling oxen and sheep, money changers, seated at their tables. They're selling doves. Here's the deal. You're traveling from hundreds of miles away. You have a couple options. You can take your own sacrifice. You can walk your sheep all this way, feed it all this way. Hopefully it won't get lame or get hurt because it has to be an unblemished sacrifice. Or you could carry a few coins and buy an animal when you get there for sacrifice. So these sellers were doing actually an important task. You had to have an animal and so they were selling these animals. Let's say you had two shabby looking sheep. They weren't fit for sacrifice. You could trade those two shabby sheep is that a tongue twister, shabby sheep? And then you could buy a good sheep, uh, a shiny sheep, and for, for two shabby sheep. And, and that would be good for your sacrifice. Okay. Now these money changers were important too. Because the coinage in the Roman Empire, uh, they're in different denominations, but they all had faces of the Roman emperors on them. Okay, and you could not carry those into the temple. The coin that you needed for the temple tax was called a Tyrian coin. It was higher quality silver. And so what would happen is uh, every family had to pay a half shekel tax. So my family owes a half shekel. Travis's family owes a half shekel. But they only come in one shekel coin. So you could either overpay or you could go in with a buddy and uh, knock out two birds with one stone. So what we'd have to do is we'd have to trade our Roman coins in at Jeannie's money changing shop. And uh, then, you know, she would take a little bit off the top, but we would be able to pay our tax. And that's what those people were for. It's not necessarily bad business going on here. But let's keep reading. Jesus goes into the situation, and he made a scourge of cords. He made a whip. And he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins, the money changers, and he overturned the tables. What is the problem here? What is Jesus so upset about? Is it corruption? 
I mean, some people think that maybe these money changers and uh, the people selling the animals were corrupt. Now, my family likes to go to Mariners games. We go several times a year because my mother-in-law always gets great tickets and, uh, and we go together a lot. And one of the criminal things, if you want to participate in the ritual of baseball at Safeco Field, is like $10 hot dogs. And you know, they, they really jack the prices up, right? But there's such a thing as competition. If you know what you're doing, you can go and buy your hot dog outside for dollars less and they're way better. You can find free parking if you get there early. And there's ways around the system. It's called capitalism, like people are competing in price. Now, there's all these money changers in the temple, all these people selling animals, and very little evidence that we have from history that these people jacked their prices way up. It's possible... It's possible that they raise their prices. But I don't think that's Jesus' point here. He doesn't seem to make a big deal out of that part of it. So what is the big deal? Let's read verse 16. He said to those who were selling the doves, He said, Take these things away and stop making my father's house a place of business. Stop making my father's house a place of business. There's a Greek word for house. It's called oikos. In fact, there's a church here in town in the York neighborhood called oikos fellowship. You may have heard of that. That word means house. And that word actually occurs twice in this sentence. So if I was reading it in the original Greek, it would literally be translated like this. Take these things away. Oh, poor James. Hang in there, buddy. Take these things away and stop making my father's oikos an oikos of business. There's a play on words going on. Stop making my father's oikos and oikos of business. That word for business is emporium. In Greek, that's where we get like drug emporium and stuff. Just a little something for you. Uh, but, uh, so, it isn't that the business is bad, at least in John's Gospel. It's where they're doing it. They're doing it in God's house. They're doing it in the temple. And why is this a problem? Let's go back to that slide, Ian. I think it's number three. It's a good song. There we go. Thanks. Um, okay, let's backtrack. Holy of Holies, court of, the, court of Israel, where only clean Israelite men could go. Court of the women, where only clean Israelite women and men could go. Court of the Gentiles. Look at this huge area out here. This is where non-Jewish people could go, where children could go, where the lame and the sick and those with leprosy could go. That's where they could go to connect with God, to draw close with Him. Where did these money changers set up camp? Where did the people selling the animals set up shop? It's in the court of the Gentiles the one place where children were allowed, the one place in the temple where the lame were allowed to beg and pray. If you wanted to draw close to God in that system, that's where you could go if you weren't a man or a pure Jewish woman to get in closer. The temple was supposed to be the place where you could come and connect with God. Instead, money changers and people selling animals. I'm thinking about most of our experiences with marketplaces and you know so think about the farmers market 
you and I go to the farmer's market, and in general, if I see a bundle of carrots for $3, I'm going to pay $3. I'm not even going to question that. In this culture, markets were not so quiet. You were expected to haggle. And you didn't just haggle like, well, I think $3. You, you yelled, and it was a, it's a very boisterous culture. It's a loud place. Animals are loud. Animals stink. Animals go to the bathroom all over the place right there. This is the place where many of you call your home of worship. What if we had animals in here and loud business going on while you're trying to worship? But then the really special people got to go somewhere else where it was nice and quiet. Okay. This is what Jesus is upset about. I found something out in researching for this message that I didn't know before. That original Solomon's temple, the original temple, did you know that Gentiles could worship in this section? Gentiles could worship in that section. In the second temple, after the exiles came back, Gentiles could worship in this section. King Herod's temple, this is when they get all weird about purity, and they think that people from other nations, they're not allowed in there, so we're going to keep them out here. Here's another thing I found out. Before Jesus' day, in the early days of Herod's temple, they used to do their money changing and selling of animals on the Mount of Olives, which is right across the Kidron Valley. It's only 200, 300 yards away from the temple. A short walk. For convenience, the religious leaders moved the business traders in the temple. For convenience. Preventing people from worship. That's what Jesus is upset about. He's filled with outrage and through his actions he shows that people are more important than man-made structures and man-made purity laws. In fact, in the wedding at Cana, what did he use to make the wine in? Purification jars. He defiled them by putting wine in them. They could only have purified water. But Jesus sees a young couple whose names we don't ever even know. It's never said in the Bible. And their names would be shamed if they run out of wine at their wedding. And what does he do? He takes these pots for purification and he provides wine. He cares more about those people than he does about these exterior purification rites. I don't think Jesus is interested in supporting man-made religious systems that keep people apart from God. The question is, what do we do? This is a very, very difficult passage to apply. And frankly, I'm under the school that not every passage is there a one-to-one ratio. We don't have a temple system. But I do think it would be helpful... If we just asked ourselves the question, what ways might we uh, prevent people from feeling welcome to experience God with us? What barriers might we put up? I think it's a question of attitude. How will I treat people who look different than me? Who think differently than me? Who vote differently than me? who have a different sexual orientation than me. Those who might have mental problems or physical disabilities, how will I treat them? What am I saying about my God? 
when I encounter different people. You know, we live in very unique times. In Jesus' day, as throughout most of history, there was no question about whether or not people were sinful or not. Nearly every religious system throughout time has always been, how do we deal with our sin problem? Do we sacrifice to this God? Do we pray this prayer? Do we do this thing? Do we not do that thing? Ours is one of the first cultures to minimize sin at all. You can watch Oprah and somebody might be on there that tells you, nope, there's no problem, Uh, we're all good, and uh, they either try and normalize sinful behavior or they just tell you, you can't help it, you're an animal. And I think that sometimes in reaction to that type of attitude, some churches, some Christians maybe, have overreacted and think that we need to tell people how rotten they are because if they just knew how rotten they were, then they would come to Jesus. Some think if we build up barriers, if we exclude people, then they'll want to change so they can be in our club. I don't see that as the model of Scripture. In fact, in Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul deals with some people who are really judgmental. They thought they knew God really well, and they were judging others. And this is what Paul says. Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness, His tolerance, and His patience with you? Do you not know that it's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance? It's God's grace that actually leads us to love Him and to change our lives? The good news is that we're forgiven by God. And I think that that's what God has called us as the church to proclaim. Good news. You know, we read the gospel. That's what gospel means, is good news. But, where the scriptures confront our sin, and I think that's what I love about the discipline of expository preaching. If you've noticed, you've been here a while... I just preach scripture. I I don't do a lot of topical things. And the reason for that is because I know myself. And I know that if I don't just follow scripture, I'll preach on the things that I like to preach about, the things that make you feel good, and the things that make me feel good, and I'll forget a lot of things. What expository preaching does is makes us confront those scriptures that are hard. And where the scriptures confront our sin, I think we need to proclaim that unashamed. I just read you a passage from Romans chapter uh, chapter 2 that said the kindness of God leads people to repentance. But there's Romans chapter 1 right before that. And there's this whole list of things that Paul talks about that can keep us from experiencing God's kingdom. Things like sexual immorality, wickedness, Greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, that's one of my favorites, disobedient to parents, ouch, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, ooh, I do a lot of those things, you see. The scriptures confront us with our sin. When I read that list, 
And I see my name by those things. I see my name by those things. It's what thrusts me into the arms of Christ. It's His kindness that turns us to repentance. It's my conviction that as we read through Scripture, as we look at it, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict us, to tell us we need Jesus. It's not us building up barriers to other people that convinces them. And I think that that's what Jesus is on about here. He's upset that this system of religion has excluded so many people. And that those people who think they're enjoying God in that holy temple area, they're only there by God's grace. They didn't get to perform to choose their heritage. They didn't get to do anything to be born male or to not be a child or to not be lame. It's all grace. So the question is, if the temple system is corrupt, who can save us? What can save us? Let's move on to verse 17. Jesus just makes this statement, take these things away, stop making my father's oikos, an oikos of business. And his disciples remembered, they, they remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has consumed me. You remember earlier we read part of Psalm 69, it was when we were singing. That's what this verse comes out of. Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is about a righteous man who stands up for justice, who stands up for God's holiness. And the people didn't like that. And they threatened his life. And they hurt him. And he suffered. And God vindicated him. Now, what's happening here, I think, is that Jesus is being recast as that righteous man who suffered. In fact... Jesus' Jesus's zeal for his father's house, it did consume him. The religious leaders actually ended up killing him. It consumed him to the end. Then the Jews said to him, What sign do you show to us as your authority for doing these things? Just a quick aside. When it says the Jews in John's Gospel, that's code for the religious leaders, the ones who are in charge of the temple system. It's not anything to do with Jewish people as a whole. Jesus was a Jewish man. His disciples were Jewish people. So it has nothing to do with the race. It has to do with leadership. So the leadership come to him and said, All right, buddy, what gives you the right to do this stuff in the temple? What sign do you have? Because if you recall, signs are, are what validated the words of the prophets. It kind of gave, it gave them permission to do what they did. They're asking Jesus for a sign, and what they don't realize is that He's already done a sign in the temple. His coming in and cleaning house is a sign of judgment, that that system is no longer needed, that He is doing something new. And so He says something even more radical. Jesus answered and said, Destroy this temple. And let me just make this point. It doesn't say, I will destroy this temple. Right? That, that's important for later on. We'll get like months later, but I'll bring us back. It says, you, basically, you destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. In three days I'll raise it up. Remember last week I gave you some homework? And we looked at the wedding of Cana, and it says 
in chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And I asked you to add up the days. Did anyone do that? <laughs> okay, if you, it's okay. Some people aren't here. I'm sure they did it. If you add up the days in the narrative up to that point, it's more than three days. You should say something like on the fifth day, Jesus was at the wedding in Cana. There's something going on with this third day theme. Of course, what day did Jesus rise from the dead? On the third day. Tear this temple down, I'll raise it up in three days. And the Jews said, It took 46 years to build this temple. They started building it in 19 BC. By Jesus' day, we're thinking this is around 28 AD. That had been about 46 years. Eric just told me my math was off. But um, the temple wasn't completed until 64 AD. But the big walls were there. Just some of the fine stuff wasn't done yet. Anyway, it had been 46 years since the temple had been started to where Jesus is saying this now and they're just like what are you talking about it's taken all this time you can't do that and now John is narrating for us but he was speaking of the temple of his body so when he was raised from the dead his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed they wanted a sign And Jesus offers the ultimate sign. Resurrection. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. In Greek, there's two words for temple. There's hieron, hieron, and naas. Now, hieron means all those walls that you saw up there, all the buildings, the stuff that the temple's made of. It's all the components of the temple. That's the hieros. The naos is the holy of holies. It's where the presence of God dwelt. Now guess what word Jesus used when he said destroy this temple? The naos. Naos. Destroy this temple. What's Jesus up to? Let me just be blunt. (laughs) Since it's hot in here. Jesus is the new temple. The temple was the place you came to connect with God, to be forgiven of your sin. Jesus is the new temple. The religious leaders had Him crucified, but He was resurrected on the third day, and He became the living temple, the temple of life. God does not dwell in a house of stone. And John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. God Himself doesn't remain aloof. He became a person and lived with us and suffered with people and died for us. Jesus is the new temple, the temple of life. In the past, before Jesus, the best one could hope for was three times a year, bring your sacrifice to the temple, slaughter, I mean, that's some nasty stuff, and you would be forgiven for the sins you had done up until that point. But I mean, that's the best? I think one of the main reasons that Jesus clears out the animals and the traitors in the court of the Gentiles is because the animals aren't needed anymore. There's no more animal sacrifice necessary. Jesus makes the ultimate sacrifice once and for all. Jesus is the temple of life. Okay, so I admit when I was looking at the title, there's some Indiana Jones going on. The 
the temple of doom and the temple of life. I mean, come on. Give me a break. But, I mean, I have a laser pin. What do you expect? Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, Jesus dooms that temple. That temple system. He says it's, it's gone. Kaput. And He becomes the new temple. The religious leadership did not understand. And you have to think, I mean, just, just, just think of this logically. Jesus goes in. At this point in His ministry, He's not well known. He comes in. He clears out the temple. I mean, come on. Those traders, those money changers, they were back in there the next day. Maybe they were back in there the next hour. Jesus' action was a sign. It was a sign. It's making a statement. In the Old Testament, the prophets did weird things all the time. Like, would pack their bags and walk out of town and, and people would be like, what are you doing? And they'd well, this means that we're going into exile, so you better pack your bags and get ready. Or Isaiah, like, he's naked, he sits around naked and... You know, you know what he uses to cook with is his excrement. I mean, it's like he does these weird things to make a point. And Jesus is making a point with this behavior. He doesn't think that clearing the temple one time is going to change the temple. What he's done is come to say, it's over. You either need to change how you're thinking about people and how they connect with God, or it's over. And unfortunately, in 70 AD, the Romans came in and they destroyed the temple. And it's still destroyed. But the new temple lives. Jesus lives. He's the temple of life. He invites you and me to come and know God intimately. To all who believe in His name, He gives the right to become children of God. We read that in the first chapter of John. No matter what you've done... No matter what guilt you may bear, no matter what barrier you think exists between you and God, Jesus is able to forgive and give us life. And that's great news. Pray with me. Jesus, you are the temple of life. I thank you that you have made a way for each one of us to draw close to God. To know God intimately. I thank you that you sacrificed yourself for us. That you've taken away the consequences of sin and death. And in your eyes you've made us righteous. You've made us holy. You've made us able to enter that holy of holy place. You've brought down dividing walls. I thank you, Jesus, that there is no barrier for gender or race, socioeconomic status, intelligence, age. You've broken down dividing walls. And the one thing that you ask is belief. Faith, trust. The one thing that you ask is the least expensive and the most valuable. It's our heart.
Forgive me, God. Forgive us for where we withhold our trust. Forgive us, God, for when we try and play God in our own lives. Lord, take us deep. Take us deeper than where we've been. Invoke new trust in us. New levels of faith and excitement of living that we've not enjoyed before. Thank you that you're approachable, O Jesus, temple of life. May we come to you unhindered. Amen.